Ossert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the Ossert Podcast. Share today, save tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and for this first episode of Season 2, I'm joined by Leslie Carhart, where we talk about the intersection between cybersecurity and operational technology, or OT, and how to do cybersecurity on a passenger plane. We then get to hear from Ossert's answer to Wonder Woman and Batman, Beck Cheb and Mike Holm, where they talk about their Ossert Conference 22 highlights. Thanks for joining us today, Leslie. Really, really appreciate the time. Can you just tell us a little bit about where you're from and what is it that you do? Thanks for having me. My name is Leslie Carhart, and I'm from Chicago, Illinois, in the United States. My professional career, I work for a company called Dragos, and we just do industrial cybersecurity. I run the incident response team for North America there, and I've been there for about four years. Prior to that, I was at Motorola running incident response there, and prior to that, I was in the Air Force in the United States. Industrial cybersecurity is, it's obviously quite different to you know, the normal office kind of cybersecurity that most people think about. What's the big difference? The difference there is consequences, really. The primary difference is that you're talking about things that can really impact the physical world and people's life and safety. So you're not just talking about malware in a vacuum or exploits in a vacuum. You're talking about a system or a process that could break resulting in something catching on fire or a system exploding, things like that. So it's real life impactful things that can be quantifiably associated with real life consequences and an impact on people. So is that something that is the consciousness about that has changed over recent years? Yeah, so there's this concept called ITOT convergence, so IT and operational technology convergence. And what it means is that over the last 20 years or so, prior to all the smart and IoT things that we talk about today, people started looking at their industrial equipment and saying, I can make this cheaper if I use commercial off-the-shelf computer equipment. So if I throw in Windows instead of building my own operating system, or I use Cisco routers and switches instead of building my own. So what we've seen over the last 20 years is more and more familiar IT systems getting put plugged into these industrial systems. And we've also seen things increasingly networked and accessible from various types of remote access protocols because that makes life easier and cheaper and more efficient. I mean, there's legitimate arguments for doing these things to industrial systems. So we are adding more risk in a lot of ways to these systems. And there's always been risk there in industrial systems. There's always been operator error and equipment failures, things like that. And there's always been good risk modeling done by operators and engineers and industrial facilities about what can go wrong and doing after action reports when things do go wrong. But now we've got this other layer of IT stuff. There's windows all over. There's remote access protocols and utilities all over the place. There's more familiar layer two, layer three, switching, routing stuff in these environments. And that adds a layer of risk and vulnerability to cyber attacks. So we've had that technical change, I guess, that's Mm -hmm. happened in the way we design, build, deploy, support these industrial systems. How have the 
threat actors moved along with that. In some ways, everything's changed, and in some ways, nothing's changed. I mean, espionage and sabotage have always been part of conflict, whether that's warfare or just you know countries trying to one up each other. So they'll they'll pick the the path of least resistance to do that. And right now, in many cases, to those industrial systems, the path of least resistance is the internet and these ever more connected industrial systems. In terms of our awareness of this happening, that's kind of sprung up over the last five years or so. That has, it's a mix, I think. It's a mix of people detecting more and then adversaries leveraging these systems more and accessing and abusing them more. So there's there's a mix of more cyber attacks and better detection for cyber attacks and more awareness of what's actually happening in these industrial environments. You've got this really strong background in incident response. How does incident response in the industrial technology world differ from the other technology world, the typical IT world? Yeah, so I tell my students and the young people that think about, you've, you've built a time machine and you're going to go back to do cybersecurity in 2002. You're going to be dealing with, you know, XPE, you're going to be dealing with Windows NT sometimes, you know, Windows 2000, etc. You're not going to be dealing with the cloud much. You're not going to have EDR. You're not going to have your whizbang modern agents for things. That's for a reason. These industrial systems, their priority is to function safely. If you start tacking on a bunch of encryption and a bunch of extra security tools, that's more room for failure. And when things fail in these industrial systems, people can die. Things can catch on fire. The safety switch that's on the wall, that the big red button, that might not work as fast if there's a bunch of added layers of technology in there. So for a lot of reasons, these systems are simple because they function and they function reliably and safely and quickly. But yeah, you're, you're going back in your time machine to like 2002 with the security technologies of that era. And you're having to adapt to modern threats, which is a really interesting challenge in incident response and investigations. So if we put aside the technology element of it, is there also a psychological or mental barrier to cybersecurity in general? Like, is there a thing that says, but we're industrial, we've like, these systems have worked for 25 years, why would we do it? Why do we have to worry about it now? Is there a whole psyche that has to change with it? My coworker bought me a, a um, placard from my desk and it doesn't say my name or incident responder. It says marriage counselor. Because <laughs> I go into these industrial environments and that's what we have to do a lot is we have to play marriage counselor because the relationship is so hostile between the IT and the OT teams. And that's because there's been a lot of bad blood between them in a lot of these environments, especially energy. So you have, you have these teams that tried to audit the industrial network and, and insist that they upgrade their systems. Well, you can't just upgrade the operating system in an industrial environment. That's going to do, it, well, there's potential impact on the system, but you're also going to void your warranty, your support contract. You're no longer going to get support on your entire power plant because you, you upgraded a Windows version on a system somewhere. Like, you can't just go in there and start applying modern security things blanket across the board. So. It's kind of created this animosity between the operators and engineers and the industrial side of things and the cybersecurity people, and that's something we have to repair now. We, can't, we know now. We can't just do a normal pen test in industrial. We can't do our typical incident response plan in industrial. We can't do our, our typical penetration test in industrial. We have to tweak these things and adapt them to the needs of being in these industrial environments that are highly sensitive and are doing these critical life-critical, safety-critical things. So do you think there's... there's a Because obviously the IT world has started to penetrate into the OT world with emerging technologies. How do you actually you know, educate the IT guys about the world of OT? 
really good start is a tabletop exercise. Do a tabletop exercise in your OT environment. Involve everybody. Involve your OT staff. Involve your IT staff. And say something simple, something that everybody understands, like ransomware. So ransomware, what's it going to do in your OT environment? Well, where do Windows systems exist in an industrial environment? They're normally like the human machine interfaces, the controls for the hmm. system. Um, they're not the low-level PLCs that make the widgets go, but they're the things that show you what's happening to the system and if it's operating safely. So if those systems get ransomed, all of a sudden you can't see if your system is functioning safely or change its, its state. It's going to kind of keep running in the same way for a while, but you're going to have to shut the whole thing down eventually or start m manually monitoring the whole thing because you can no longer see your operational screens. Mm. So do a, do a tabletop and talk through that scenario and see what you would actually do if all of a sudden one day every single one of your HMIs and engineering workstations in your industrial environment popped up with a ransomware screen. Who would respond? Who would make the calls on the OT side of things about whether you shut down or not? Would you do forensics? How would you do that? You can't just install things on these systems. They might be Windows XP embedded. So your modern forensics tools might not even work. Talk through this whole scenario and see how different it is and what the severe consequences of having to shut down your process suddenly might be. It can be incredibly expensive. It can be incredibly unsafe. It can be very costly to restart the process. So all those considerations Sometimes the best way to, to approach that is to gamify things and see what you ac actually do. And that's where you're going to see your IT incident response plan isn't going to work. It's not going to work there. There's too many other teams involved. There's too many safety concerns and risks involved for you to use that normal I IT incident response plan without elements of OT being added onto it. So I'd start there. And that gets your everybody involved. And everybody likes to play a game. And they'll enjoy that. They'll, that'll be kind of fun. And they won't feel like they're being accused of something. So make it a game and just make it a learning experience where you're going to learn from them and they're going to learn from you and try it and see where you land. And that's a good start. But really, it's just all about conversation and communication. You, are, you have to understand, if I can teach you one thing on this podcast, is you will never know um, as much about your industrial process as your engineers do. Not ever. Not ever in a million years. They have things to teach you forever and ever. You have things to teach them about cybersecurity, but you need to listen and you need to be educated by them and what they need to keep the process running safely. Whatever that process is in your environment, whether it's electrical power generation or it's the HVAC systems that keep your data center cool, you need to understand that and be respectful and be humble about learning about those things from your operators and engineers. And I guess, you know, the, we learned that lesson, you know, must be almost 15 years ago when industrial centrifuges were nobbled by software, you know, by yeah. someone's virus. We, no one ever really knows the exact retribution and no one ever tries to accuse anyone of it. But APT0. Yeah, you know, we know these things can happen and compromise, op you know, important operational equipment. It, you know, putting aside those, in inverted commas, malicious acts that might happen out in the world of cyber warfare and in nation-state attacks, are you seeing an escalation now in attacks against you know, civilian resources and civilian assets? So I kind of divide our incidents into three categories. Um, the first one, of course, is those state-style espionage, sabotage situations. And normally those are not instantaneous. Those are normally pre-positioning and reconnaissance for future things, preparing to do things in the future when geopolitics align in a way that it's valuable to expend all those resources, but gathering information, building footholds, things like that. 
And that's hard to catch. That can be very low and slow and quiet. And then the second category is the commodity malware, which hits industrial too in ways I described previously. So ransomware, all kinds of different commodity malware that's usually out there to get money. That's becoming more well-resourced. And we're starting to see poking around with industrial technologies in the ransomware space and in the commodity malware space because they're so rich now. They're so gosh darn rich because so many ransoms have been paid out that now they can have the technology and the resources to do things like target industrial systems and that's really bad. And finally, the last category of things is insiders and that can be unintentional or intentional. So. Your intentional insiders, of course, are the, the people um, <laughs> who dump sewage into a lake. Now that we're in Australia, and we can talk about that, which was one of the earliest documented Yeah, that attacks. was not yeah. far from where we're sitting yeah, right now. Yeah, not far from where we're sitting right now. Wow, I should, I should go visit. So insiders who are disgruntled for some reason, who know about the process, are the, the people who are most capable of breaking it. So, hmm. so interestingly, but, sorry, the first thing you mentioned in there was around, you know, the low and slow breaches that sit there until there's an opportunity to really take advantage of it so when you guys have gone in and investigated a site where someone says i think there's something a bit hinky going on inside the environment but we don't know what it is looking at something else and they find something yeah Yeah. like has there been one in there that you guys have found that has what's the longest one of those sorts of low and slow attacks has been sitting there before it's been detected in your experience years years absolutely um, oh wow! But I mean, the scales of ABT persistence haven't changed much over time. They've gotten a little better, but especially in these systems where there's no EDR and stuff, somebody mm. can persist on there. And you know, especially if there's stolen credentials, things like that. You're talking about systems where there's no modern security tools. There's maybe traditional antivirus. If somebody has somebody's VPN credentials or the RDP credentials from a compromised IT network. They can sit in there forever and they're doing quiet things with authorized credentials like exporting screenshots of HMIs and unless you have an application deployed in that environment that's looking for those very specific espionage type things, that's not going to flag in your traditional antivirus or anything. It's just somebody taking screenshots. Like You need very specialized tools or human threat hunting to detect that. Um, So when we talk about you know these industrial systems often being built around leg- you know legacy in inverted commas platforms things like you know windows xp embedded and you know all those sorts of older tools how hard is it to actually do an audit that's fit for the context of those environments it's tough i mean you just have there's so many other considerations that go into that and I'm not going to try to shill things. There's a few companies that are in the competitor space with Dragos who sell service various services for industrial systems, and sometimes you have to contract that in because you don't have that that combined niche specialty. But the best thing that you can do if you're not going to hire in specialists in in whatever it is, incident response for ICS or penetration testing or whatever, is have those very very deep forthcoming conversations with your operators and engineers and understand what you can and can't do and talk very for, in a very, very direct and honest way about what you're trying to accomplish and that they're not in trouble and that you want to learn from them as well. Um, and you've got to keep that dialogue open because it's probably in pretty pretty terrible shape right now in most organizations. Cybersecurity is just the people who say no to a lot of engineers. They're just the people who tell them they can't go to websites or that they can't access their systems or that they can't plug in USB drives, that's all they know you as. 
And you're going to have to start from scratch, and that means some very honest, humble conversations with them. I think there's a, there is a fairly big disconnect between the IT and OT worlds, but I think it is getting better, and I think they're starting to learn to talk to each other's languages. Particularly now, we've got this world of IoT and industrial IoT where we've got you know, almost consumer-level bits of equipment that are starting to permeate. You know, when you start to talk about IoT, this is you know, mass-produced gear that often isn't built specifically with a, with a big security profile in mind. Are you starting to see that that's introducing new risks and that there's a thirst to introduce the new technology but there's also a disconnect with the understanding of the risk that that brings? IIoT devices do pose extra risk. They are less tested for security vulnerabilities, certainly, and they tend to have less security behind them in their development. However, the caveat here is once you get inside an industrial environment, it's pretty squishy in the center. Once you get past that segmentation and those remote access barriers that you should have in place, you should have proper segmentation in these environments, you can pretty much interact with things. And I see a lot of people complain that they found a vulnerability in XYZ industrial device. And that's interesting. It's, in, it's an important thing to know and fix over time. But really, once you're in there, PLCs kind of tell you, do what they, you tell them to do. They accept commands and they need to do that in a fast and efficient way. Again, if you press the giant red button, the safety switch on the wall of your environment, you can't have an extra three second delay in there because you've added in layers of security. It needs to shut off the system right away so somebody isn't chewed up by a machine. Those systems tend to use unencrypted protocols and be very simplistic because they need to accept commands reliably and quickly without having a bunch of overhead and potential points of failure. So that's always going to be a problem. It's not just an IoT problem. Once you're inside a segment of an industrial network and they should be properly segmented, they should have good security monitoring, they should have good remote access control and not any uh, out-of-band connections that aren't approved, it's going to be squishy in there. It's going to be easy to exploit those devices because they are meant to function simply. I think that issue is not as huge uh, by itself as it might appear. Really, the fundamentals of architecture and segmentation are the biggest problem right now that people need to tackle. You mentioned before we went on air about your experience in looking at aeroplanes. Yeah. to me, an aeroplane's like a giant toaster. Like it's an appliance I get in and it just does a thing. Like, And often that the industrial IT feels like that. It's an appliance. It might be a very big and complex one, but it's a thing that we just expect to push a button and it just works. Yeah. Are there different challenges when you start to talk about aeroplanes as opposed to the rest or other, other types of industrial IT? Or is it is it just another one of the same? It's all the same problem. And the problem is, and if you're interested in getting into industrial cybersecurity, here's my recommendation. Every day is going to be an episode of how stuff works. You need to start by understanding what the process is at a high level. What is the process? And then once you understand what your process is at a high level, what are the worst case scenarios? What are the consequences you're really concerned about? So what is the worst day ever here? And then you map down, we call this like crown jewel analysis or consequence modeling. So let's take this process and understand, okay, what are the terrible things that could happen? And then the hazards that can cause those things to happen inside the the chain of events that happen in that process. And then what mitigations are in place to prevent that bad thing from happening. And if you map this down from the top, from those consequences, by understanding the process, you start to understand 
What systems could potentially cause that terrible thing to happen? And then what specific things in those systems? And again, are there any mitigations in place? And where could those mitigations fail? And that's where you really start to understand where you need to look from a threat hunting perspective, from an incident response perspective, and where you need to add in more layers of cybersecurity. So last question, um, in this series for the OzCert podcast, we're asking everyone to call out some of your favorite mentors or people that you've seen as cybersecurity heroes. So I was just wondering, could you, do you have anyone or you know, maybe more than one person you want to kind of shout out and say thank you to as being a great mentor or a great leader or a great guide in your career? So I'll name three really quickly. Um, the first one is Jack Daniel, previously from Tenable, now retired. He's a wonderful gentleman who helps run B-Sides Las Vegas and B-Sides all over the place. And uh, I owe him a great deal in terms of mentorship in my career. The second would be Dr. Eugene Spafford at Purdue University, who is not appreciated enough for all he's done for computer science and cybersecurity. He's he's phenomenal and a wonderful mentor to me. And finally, my first supervisor as a security analyst years and years ago, Bogdan Serkovic, who unfortunately passed away way too young and was an incredible boss, taught me what it meant to be a manager and taught me how to be a good human being. Thank you so much for your time today, Leslie. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. Now it's over to Beck and Mike as they wrap up OzCert Conference 2022 and give us a heads up on next year's event. Morning, Mike. How are you doing? Thanks Good for joining morning, me. Beck. Thank you very much for having me. I can't believe we're back for Series 2 of our podcast. It's very exciting. Oh, it'll be OzCert 2023 before you know it. <laughs> we'll just blink. Yeah, very excited to be back for another season and an amazing lineup of speakers and interviews that we have for everyone. So... It'll be great to to get this season underway. You know, everyone's just listened to Leslie Carhart, who we all have a very soft spot for, which is really awesome. Was she the highlight of your OSCERT 2022 conference, Mike? <laughs> I, I think she might have been. She's very, very humble, and I tried not to sort of be a bit of a, a fanboy around her, but I, I did sort of say how pleased I was to meet her in person, and I think I might have embarrassed her a little bit, but that's okay. She definitely was a highlight because if you listen to her talk, a lot of what she talked about was a holistic program around managing OT and uh, you know we all know that you can have a point in time and you can just sort of run in and with a fire extinguisher and put out problems and deal with things on the spot but unless you've got that end-to-end you know here's what I'm planning to do here's what I'm doing here's how I'm checking what I'm doing here's how I'm I'm improving what I'm doing unless you've got that nice cycle to tie everything together you're going to miss stuff and that was one of the things that that she taught us how to do that in the OT space. Such a good message yeah so I guess on that front is there ways that we're supporting members Mm. you know when we're looking at that OT angle what are our services how do we support that? (laughs) It's it's actually funny you say that because I was sort of sitting there in the audience and I was sort of thinking, okay, well, there's there's a lot of people in, in this room. You know, we had, it was one of the, the keynote plenaries and had a lot of people in there. What's everyone thinking? What's everyone doing? And I, I knew, because I'd talked to a lot of people at the conference, you know, we had quite a lot of our members were there and they were probably all looking for answers. And, you know, Leslie gave us plenty of answers, of course, but we probably also had some vendors in there that were also providing solutions. So I sort of turned my mind to, well, hang on, what are we doing? Because we always, as you know, you know, we always try and sort of fit into that space that's not really occupied by the vendors because you know we're a not-for-profit and we're, we're different. So I, I wanted to sort of think, well, is what we're doing hitting the mark? And then I sort of thought back to a few things that the team had come up, particularly over the last year or so. You've heard me talk before about the dumpster fire notices. 
and officially they're actually one of the the OSA MSIN. So if you look in our services, you'll find the the member security incident notifications or MSINs as we call them. But the dumpster fire notifications were a little subclass of those. The team sort of realised that every now and then something really hits the fan in a bad way. And it kind of looks like that burning dumpster rolling down the street out of control, about to crash into a whole lot of parked cars or something. And what the team do is when they sort of notice, okay, there's a a zero-day vulnerability, this is really hitting the fan, we need to maybe do a bit of a search for that and see if we can see if any of our members are actually exposed to that. We don't actively scan our members, so we're not, you know, doing pen tests or anything. That's We're not in the system. No, that's that's not our territory. We know that there's some excellent um, providers out there that are doing penetration testing, and so that's not our space. But there's a lot of open source and closed source intelligence that we can tap into. And once we've got that information, and of course we, we've got a great relationship with all our members, so we know you know a lot of what their systems are, obviously what their publicly facing systems are, that sort of thing. Now hopefully there's not too much OT dangling out on the internet just completely exposed, but even if it's not exposed, there's still plenty of bits of intelligence that we get in all of that intelligence that we source from around the world. We've got contacts with other cert teams and providers around the world. And there's a lot of information in there about our members. So we're, we're constantly finding these things and sending them back. So when one of these, these dumpster fires blows up, that's all hands on deck in the team. And you know someone will run point on it and do all the research and figure out, well, what can we do? What can we look for? Been a couple you know, that, that have been quite serious, like there was an Atlassian one earlier. It's just a matter of time before something in the OT space comes out as well. So that sort of thing is what we're doing for our members. It's so what information are we looking for for our members? How do we identify Ooh. that it belongs to our members? Oh, that's, that's an excellent question because unless the members that we have have updated their publicly facing IPs, domains and IPs, then we're possibly not going to see it. We've got some intelligence behind these things, but it just makes it so much better if you can pop into the member portal and put your domains and IPs in there. I always joke and say, of course, you've got no shadow IT that you don't know about, so you can just list all your domains and IPs. No surprises at all. (laughs) Yeah, so that's a really good point to our members. That's why we're always saying, if we can have the most current information for your domains and IP addresses, upload the member portal is the easiest way. If you know, even if you make a change, email membership at ausert.org.au, they'll update them for you. Like whatever you do, just make sure that that data is there because the more we know, the more we can look for you. Bingo. Yeah, I guess I, I have to have a little Leslie moment because to be honest, it took every ounce of my being not to call her hacks for pancakes oh, the yeah. entire conference. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I did recall a few people as they recognize Leslie and they're like, oh my gosh, that's, that's her that's from the internet. I searched through my emails when I approached Leslie and I think I've contacted her at least half a dozen times in the, in the last few years going, please come, please come. So I feel like we really ticked a good we, we've, achieve box we've there for us. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was her first time in Australia, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and wasn't it nice just to have an international keynote back in the country and that was excited and, and got to go cuddle koalas and yeah. and do all the Aussie things. So Yeah, that's a bit of a thing, isn't it? We've had so many keynotes over the years say, oh, I finally cuddled a koala. <laughs> I know Leslie said that. So we're already working on next year's keynotes, but I'd love if anyone has ideas. You know, who's, who's the rock star mm. that you'd like to see at next yeah. year's Aussie conference? Definitely send any ideas through because... That's my favourite part of the job is trying to, to lure them into Australia and, and get them to agree to join us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you've brought some excellent ones in over the last few years. And, you know, thanks to our very generous sponsors, we've been able to 
provide you know flights and accommodation for our international and local speakers and that's that's one of the advantages of our conference it's it's so important to me to invest in those speakers i know how much they're giving up of their time and you know the effort they put into their presentations and tutorials so really important that we can try and give them some benefits and you know don't expect them to fund their own way to join us of course (laughs) yeah so yeah really good timing of course you know covid still gives us a little few things along the way to deal oh, with yeah. who would have thought you know after having so many people face to face that we still have issues but merchandise is on the way to everybody the, the ship finally got through and i'm i'm so excited for everyone to see it because i another one of my fun jobs yeah. is playing with merchandise and, and and pushing the boundaries and hopefully people realize that you know we spend a lot of money on our bags and shirts to make them really good quality mm. i you know we don't want to be contributing to the landfill because someone yeah. uses it once and it's broken it's meant to be exactly. a good it's quality meant to last. Yeah. yeah although we did give the option this year to opt out of merchandise for those people that Say, look, you know, I'm still using my offset bag yeah, from three years ago. I don't need one yet. That's right. If you've got a 10-year-old offset bag that's still working, I know I've got a couple at home. <laughs> They're well loved, yeah. I, and I can see the vintages are the most popular. So, you know, we take, we take that into account. So, yeah, merchandise is being posted. So people should see that in their mailboxes shortly. And if you missed out, just email conference at ozcert.org.au and we'll see what we can do to help you. And also, I guess a nice tie into that, you can keep reliving the conference that, yeah, videos are available in on-air. So if you're registered for the conference, you'll be able to have a login to that and uh, re-watch your favorite videos like Leslie, or also watch some of the streams that you missed out on. Because I, I think that was one of my favorite things this year as well, is that those four streams gave people a bit of a conundrum. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and, and not only that, there were so many personal connections being made in the conference. And I've got a new metric for me personally and the metric is how long it takes to walk from one end of the conference venue to the other because as you do of course you bump into people you know and everyone wants to sort of talk about the cybers and everything so i think my record was actually over an hour just to walk from (laughs) one end of the venue to the other and i think that's wonderful that people are able to reconnect again but if yeah like me if you missed some of those stream sessions you'll want to jump into on air and have a listen to them. One stream session I did see that I'd highly recommend, Mandy Turner, who did probably the one of the best jobs of tying the theme in with cartoons and all kinds of exciting characters she, and things. She is amazing at making that connection to Very theme. Very informative <laughs> cybercrime seminar, so I'd encourage people to look at that and all of the other presentations as well. Awesome. To wind out conference, and I'm sure everyone's sick of hearing me talk about conference, but... <laughs> Next year, save, you know, book it into your calendars. We're at the same venue, same week of May. So it'll be the 9th to the 12th of May. We do try to keep it a bit consistent so you can plan ahead. I know Adam Spencer's already got his calendar booked out. So I hope everybody else puts those little placeholders in for themselves as well. Yeah, and always looking for for feedback. If anyone Mm -hmm. has ideas on how we can grow and improve, you know, it's it's always fun for us to, to make changes and experiment. You know, this year we had our psychologist on board for free appointments mm. and that was a suggestion through the Blue Hackers. Oh, yes. Uh, which was great. So, yeah, really open if anyone's got ideas. Yeah. Nothing is a crazy idea. We'll, <laughs> we'll try most things once. Yeah, why not? <laughs> if, it's, if it's beneficial for delegates, then yeah. we want to be able to do it. So, yeah. All right. I think that's enough from us. Thanks for joining me, Mike. And Thanks for inviting me. Good to talk. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow the OzCert podcast. Special thanks to Leslie and to Mike and Beck. We'll be back next month with episode two of this new season of Share Today, Save Tomorrow with a new guest and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to know more about OzCert, be sure to visit ozcert.org.
www.ghanaian.com.au.